leading into Christmas as a time of expectation, as a time of longing, uh, looking back to and celebrating the incarnation of Christ, but also anticipating uh, his future return. And this is why we are uh, taking up Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I can't preach every verse in exhaustive detail, but I want us to get a sense of the whole scope of Isaiah chapter 40. And this is God's word, so let's give our careful attention to it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand, and taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket." and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Our Father, pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O great God, our rock and our redeemer. For it's Christ, in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Behold your God. Come behold the wondrous mystery. And we'll close this service with another song called Behold Our God. Have you ever heard someone describing a scary illness or sickness and felt like the symptoms that they're describing you start to have? I remember the first time that I heard what it was like to experience a heart attack. It was very, very striking. I don't remember all of the things that uh, come on when you're having a heart attack, but there is a pain down your arm. And then every time I was playing volleyball or other things, I had uh, some kind of stretched uh, arm or stiffness or something. I was like, that's it. I'm having a heart attack. I'm 13 years old, but I know I'm having a heart attack. A great, great fear started to captivate my imagination. And I'm sure you've heard of different diseases where you're like, yep, that's something that I'm sure I'm coming down with. Uh, when you have kids, you're on heightened alert, particularly in this time of the year, with any sniffles or sickness. Because as soon as there's a little bit of sickness in your family, you know all of us are coming down with it soon. And it's so easy to live a life captivated, defined more by our fears than by our trust and by our rest in the great, glorious, awesome God of the Bible. God's call to Isaiah is to go and to comfort his people. And that is the call that comes and addresses our hearts this morning. How do I find real, genuine comfort from my fears? How do I live a life not captivated, not determined or shaped by whatever anxiety is crippling me this week or this day? What would it be like for you to live a life that is determined, that's shaped by the reality of who God is and live a life free from fears? That's the comfort that comes from beholding the true and awesome God of the Bible. Well, let's consider first in our passage that comfort comes from beholding the infinite glory of God. Comfort comes from beholding the infinite glory of God. Isaiah is summoned up on a mountain, and he's told to become a herald. Uh, when we hear the term herald of good news in the New Testament, it's preceded by this section. Announce gospel. Announce good news. And what is the good news that he is to announce we see it uh, in our passage, verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes. Or verse 9, behold your God. Uh, like the confrontation that Job has at the end of the book of Job with the Lord himself, a series of rhetorical questions are given to us in chapter 40 of Isaiah. And we're intended to see, to not just see and kind of understand, but actually experience the glory, the transcendence, 
the awesome might and omnipotence of our God. So we see the infinite glory of God in that he's omnipresent, omnipotent, and he transcends his creation. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Uh, The oceans, I looked up, uh, contain, according to those who try to measure these things, 352 quintillions of gallons of water. That's 352 followed by 18 zeros. It's impossible to imagine. Uh, The University of Michigan uh, Stadium, call it the big house, has 107,601 seats. It's the third largest stadium in the world. And some uh, U of of M math student estimated you could fit 381 million gallons of water in the big house. So how many stadiums of water would it take to uh, fill the whole world uh, with water? It's beyond what you can really imagine. 478 followed by nine zeros of UMM stadiums it would take to fill the world with water. And the passage says all of that, all of those quintillions of gallons are held in the smallest part of God's hand. The hollow of your hand is the tiniest part of your hand. When you make a little bit of a cup, that is what it takes for God to hold all the waters in his hand. God, of course, doesn't have physical hands, but it's a a metaphor. It's an anthropomorphism people describe to help us to understand something true about God. Well, who has marked off the heavens with the span? Verse 12b, who is able to measure out all of the stars and all of the universes? Astronomers estimate two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, and that's just what we can observe. And the passage wants you to think, how many galaxies are there actually? And the answer is, we don't know, but God knows every single galaxy, and he's measured it out, and every star in the sky. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, verse 22, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? God is like someone going out on a camping trip, who all of those immense galaxies are like a tiny tent that he can spread out and live inside of it. You remember that when God drew Abram out under the stars, he told him when he was promising the future descendants, Genesis 15, 5, look up at the sky, count the stars, and it says, if you can. And the challenge to Abram is, try, try to go out and start counting. That is how great the descendants will be. And there's a challenge in this passage to say, can you count the heavens? Can you measure off the span of the galaxies? Who is like our God? And the implicit answer is, nobody is as great and awesome and glorious as our God. Sometimes people try to make God approachable or uh, uh, finite in some sense and think that this is how we can have a relationship with the real God of the Bible. We're going to diminish some of his attributes so that we can actually approach him and come into a relationship with him. The Bible says, no, you won't be comforted by that. In order to be comforted in Isaiah 40, you have to behold the glory and the splendor of the true God of the Bible. Psalm 147 verse 4 says, The Lord determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. You've probably seen the uh, offering to go out and buy a star so someone can name it 
And the Bible says they're all already called for. God has named them all. He knows every single one. Who is like our God, knowing every one of the stars? The implicit answer is nobody is as great as our God. But second, we see God's infinite glory in that he knows everything. He knows everything and nobody has to teach him anything. Verses 13 and 14, who has measured the spirit of God or who shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Remember the frustration as a kid of the day after day after day after day after day of going to school and often asking, why do I need to do this, mom and dad? Why do I always have to be going to these classes that I don't want to go to? Or why do I have to learn this? Is it actually practical? Will I actually use it? And the answer is yes, we actually need this many, many, many days of learning because we are finite. We do not understand things immediately. We have to be taught. And this passage says God is not like us. He never goes to school. Uh, he's never caught in a situation where he doesn't know what to do and he has to call a consultant and have someone come and give him advice or help him understand something. This passage says God is infinite in what he knows. He's never caught unawares. He's never taught anything where he says, oh, this is a surprise. I wasn't expecting to learn that. Who is like our God not needing anyone to teach him. And the implicit answer is, nobody is like our awesome and glorious God. And to come to the particular context of Isaiah 40, the reason Israel needs to be comforted is because the kings who are leading Israel have responded to their fears by trusting in the nations around them. The Assyrians are starting to approach against Hezekiah, and Hezekiah tries to say, should I trust in the Lord, or should I make an alliance? And he goes down to Egypt, and he says, I need some practical help. I need something that will actually deliver me and rescue me when I'm threatened. And judgment is coming at the end of, verse, of chapter 39. And the temptation is to say, I'm going to go to something that will actually save me and rescue me. And Isaiah says, your only hope is the omnipotent, omnipresent, all-knowing, real God that is in saving relationship with you, Israel. And it's very easy for us to read these Old Testament uh, prophecies. It's very beneficial for you to take some time and read Old Testament prophecies in this season, looking forward to Christ's coming again. But it's very easy for us to see unbelief or distrust and say, how could that possibly be? How foolish would you be to mean to make an alliance with a, uh, a false rescuer, a, a king or a nation around you to try to save Israelite from invaders? But we are just the same. We respond to our fears by coming up with some practical plan by which we will make our own salvation happen. We respond to our fears by trying to fix things in our own way. And so I want us to see second... That comfort comes from remembering our smallness and that we will all soon pass away like grass. Comfort comes by remembering we are small and that we will all soon pass like grass. This is very counterintuitive to be told your life is passing away. But notice how this is the comfort that comes in verse 6. A voice said, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. 
all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord will stand forever. It's difficult for us to relate maybe in Michigan to very, very passing grass. Uh, The field across my house in Tijuana would be watered for one day and then we'd lose water for many, many days after that. And what sprung up very quickly and beautifully, mostly weeds with uh, some nice flowers on it, in one day of heat was scorched and burned. And God is saying to us, look at that picture of something that passes away so quickly. And when you're tempted to put your trust in man or put your trust in anything in this creation that your heart will connect to and say, this is what's going to rescue me. God is saying, it's all passing. It will not last. Don't put your hope here. It will disappoint you. Against the massive, infinite glory of God, we as humans are described as that which is very quickly passing away. All flesh is like grass. He's intending to undermine false sources of confidence, false sources of hope, and help us to see that we're small, and this is actually for our good, to humble us before our awesome, glorious God. God. Verses 15 and 17 say this, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Saying to Hezekiah, you see hundreds and hundreds of thousands of warriors marching toward you. You know that that's coming uh, in your future. Don't be afraid. All of those things will pass away. You see kings making alliances to come and destroy Israel. Do not fear. They're like a drop in the bucket. If you go out to uh, the lakeside next summer, probably not for a while now because it's very cold, uh, and you take your family out there, you uh, seem to be gathering up the coastlands as you pack up your kids to come home. I always have the experience of thinking that we pretty much cleaned off our kids, but we put them in the car, and as we're driving home, you get home, and there seems to be like the whole of Lake Michigan sand in your car, and you think, oh man, what happened to this? Uh, how did the, the, the sand just seem to multiply and self-generate in our Uh, beach bags and in our shoes and everything. The sand seemed to go on endlessly. And God is saying, I know all of the coastlands of this endless sand, and it's all small compared to me. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And now he drives right to the heart of the matter, verses 18 to 20. The heart of the matter is that our problem is that our hearts are idol-making factories, as Calvin put it. Verse 16, 17, and 18. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. But when we encounter these things, when we have some real fearful circumstance approaching and headed toward us, what do we do? To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare to him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. The author of this book is comforting us by showing us how silly idol-making was. Hire someone to make something that will seem to last. Choose wood that's not going to rot, the author says. Cover it with gold to try to preserve it. And if you remember 
the point in the greater context is that God never passes the way, that God is glorious and infinite. And what do we do when we're afraid, when there are real threats in our life? We form idols and we try to put our hope and our confidence in them. Tim Keller writes in a, a book I would highly recommend, Counterfeit Gods, anything more important to, than you, than God, is an idol. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So what keeps you up in the nights? What are you afraid to lose? And what is it that you love so much that you think, God, if you were to take this from my life, my life would not be worth living See, your, your life will be directed by your fears, and your fears determine then your worship. He goes on to write, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance, I can really relate to this, is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. What is the actual determining power and Lord in your life that you say, Lord, if you were to take this from me, I could not live. And comfort comes from God addressing you this morning and saying, whatever that is, it's passing away. Don't put your hope there. It's like grass. It's going to pass. It's too small for it actually to hold up as the object of your worship. G.K. Beale writes in, We become what we worship. An idol is anything that the heart clings to for ultimate security. And God is saying to you this morning, don't put your confidence in that which is passing. I am infinite and glorious and awesome. Comfort comes from beholding my glory, not by putting your trust and your rest in that which is of this creation and passing away. Well, I want us to see third and finally, that comfort comes from the infinite God stooping down to take on our flesh. Comfort comes from the infinite God stooping down to take on our flesh. You might imagine, and as you read the book of Isaiah, it's kind of surprising that God doesn't just wipe out his people all the way. There are many, many indictments in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. The people are lifting up hands that have been soiled with blood in worship, and God is saying, I don't delight in these things. Uh, in chapter 6, Isaiah comes into the presence of God and he says, I'm surrounded by a people of iniquity and I am also uh, covered with sin. And you might imagine judgment means God will just wipe away his people and start over in the book of Isaiah. But there's these punctuated, glorious promises of the fact that though God's people have thrown their trust and their hope in idols, God will come to cleanse Israel. God will come to chop down the sources of false hope, to burn them to a stub, and then a shoot will pop out from the stump of Jesse. And God will do what we in our idolatrous and sinful nature cannot do. God is coming. God is on his way. Prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah 40 says. And when John the Baptist came preaching this message, he says, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he called the Jews, God's people themselves, to repentance and saying, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
But John the Baptist thought he knew exactly what this king was going to do. Finally, the coming Lord who would come and slice down the Romans and cut down the sources of what he thought was his greatest fear. And so John says, are you the Christ or is there someone else coming? And we see in the incarnation of God that the glorious God who hung the stars in the sky, who counts all of the sands of the seashore, is the same God who took on our flesh and who came to bear our iniquities. And so God can stoop down very, very gently. And notice what it says in verse 11 of Isaiah 40. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Notice the verbs in that verse. Tend, gather, carry in his bosom, and gently lead. And the great and awesome, glorious God who holds all the waters in the smallest part of his hand took on flesh, and those hands were pierced to a cross and carried our idolatrous evil sins on and in his body on the tree and philippians 2 tells us that though he was in the form of god he did not count equality with god something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross But I think when we hear the gospel announced, we often say, all of that is fine, but like Hezekiah, I have real problems still, God. What are you going to do about my work problem that I have, about my marriage problem? How are you going to fix my kids? And what are you going to do to actually make my life easier? And the answer is, come and behold the glory of God Set aside the things in your life that you are worshiping and that are dominating your imagination, that you're afraid of losing, and come and worship the glorious God of the Bible. And he has taken on our flesh and our nature so that the shepherd of his people, the one who promised in Psalm 23 always to lead his people, was not only the shepherd, but becomes the lamb, the lamb of God. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you seem to be living in an island of fear, if your life seems to be dominated by your anxieties and your fears, you're called this morning to behold the wondrous mystery of God taking on flesh, shepherding you with his presence, and telling you all idolatrous things will not satisfy you. Come to me, come to me and find actual rescue, actual peace. And don't you want a life that's dominated, that's defined by peace, that's not controlled by your fears? For all of us this year who've been broken, who in different ways think life is not the way it should be as we head into Christmas, this is the announcement to you that you can live a life that is not dominated and defined by your fears, but's defined by the glorious God who holds all the waters in his hands, who put the whole heaven, stretched it out as the the, banner over your life, who himself was also pierced for our transgressions, who was pierced and cut down for our iniquities. He tells you, put your hope and your rest in me 
and I will actually satisfy you, and I will actually heal your fears, and I will be the source of the one who carries you gently in his bosom and gently leads you, uh, leads those who are with young. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious mystery of the incarnation. We thank you, Lord, that we are preparing, even in our hearts, a way for you, Lord, our God. And that as this passage describes, every mountain will be cast low and every valley raised up. But Lord, would you help us to see your defining glory? Would you help us to see that the glory of Jesus was seen, he says, most clearly on a cross? Now is the hour of the sun coming now. I will be raised up and all, I draw all men to myself. Lord, would you help us uh, to glory in both the incarnation and the suffering of our Savior and see that all idolatrous hopes are like grass that's quickly passing away. We pray that we would be a people defined by trust and hope and peace, Lord, instead of our fears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.